So this will be the inaugural um, podcast. Uh, uh, my name is Steven Schleifer, and I'm here with uh, Bob Quinn. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? And Yeah, currently I teach full-time at the National University of Natural Medicine School of Classical Chinese Medicine. There I supervise in the intern clinic, but I also teach a full year of uh, what's called traditional mentorship tutorial. In that class I get to teach whatever I want to teach, and the students who are interested in learning my way of working, uh, they would join that class for the year. This year I've moved away from teaching Japanese acupuncture to doing uh, body work, uh, most of it quite gentle. I also teach a class called Advanced Palpation and Perception, and I teach the Asian Bodywork class. And I jump in and out of a class called uh, Clinical Medicine. I teach uh, some scalp acupuncture and pediatrics there. Uh, in terms of background, I've been in Chinese medicine practicing for 21 years um, and uh, graduated from OCOM, Oregon College of Oriental Medicine, in 1998. and But immediately, uh, I, I did not feel at home in TCM as a style. I have respect for uh, its practitioners, of course. I hope that's clear. Uh, but I wanted something more hands-on, and I understand our conversation today is going to be about touch. That's and right. this what drove me in the direction first of the acupuncture physical medicine style designed, uh, developed by Mark Seem in New York City, and then later to various uh, Japanese styles, uh, Meridian Therapy in the Shudo style, Toyohari, Shakuju, Koshi Balancing, uh, Dr. Bear style, and Nagano style, uh, these being the, the main ones that I've focused on. And I've <clears throat> learned a lot, Stephen will be introducing himself momentarily here, but it was an odd situation for me to have him on my shift at school, but I could see uh, that his work in the Qigong Twina system was quite profound, and it's only grown deeper, so uh, for, I don't know, I'm guessing six years now that I've been studying with someone who was actually a student on my shift uh, and grateful for the uh, collaboration and uh, how much I've gained from uh, studying uh, Qigong Twina as well as uh, Qigong uh, itself. Yeah, so my background is that I would say that the heart of my training is Qigong training and um, that started around uh, 1999, somewhere around there, and you know, I went uh, explored various different uh, teachers here in the U.S. Um, so I made my the rounds in that regard. Um, I also at that time started doing. Um, I attended a, a, a bodywork program in Ohio, which was very good. Largely focused on therapeutic treatments, sports injuries, and things of that nature had uh, wonderful teachers in that regard. And so the combination of Qigong um, training as well as the body work, you know, led me on this path to Chinese medicine. So I attended um, NUNM, um, completed my uh, Chinese medicine degree in uh, 2011, I believe. Um, and then just continued with the uh, Qigong training. So. I currently work with a teacher called, uh, his name is Damo Mitchell, 
um, a Brit and uh, um, actually just completed his uh, or about to complete his uh, Chinese medicine program with him that uh, he offered in the UK and you know trying to delve deeper and get an understanding not broad and um, you know go into different various different fields but try to 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 find the essence the heart of of Chinese medicine and classical Chinese medicine at that um, and so from that uh, I wanna what I have found the the key piece to clinical skills is having appropriate touch having the ability to connect and communicate with the tissues with the person um, at large to effect change within them right and so you know you've had a, a, a background a, a whole gamut of, of how to approach this this notion of touch so let you know what what's your take on it well it's something I uh think about uh, often um, because I, I operate a, a seminar hosting company here in Portland, uh, Portland Traditional Japanese Medicine Seminars. So I've had, and that's been going for 11 years. I have a partner doing that with me and uh, I don't know how many seminars, never fewer than four per year, sometimes as many as 11 per year. So for 11 years going at, at that sort of rate, I've had a chance to study with so many uh, teachers uh, who have such elevated perception in their touch. Some of them are blind. Uh, many acupuncturists uh, uh, are unaware, and other people as well, of course, then, that uh, there is a tradition of blind acupuncture, uh, acupuncturists in uh, Japan. I think mm -hmm. currently it's under 30%, but at times in the past it's been a half or more have been blind. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Yeah. And a massage therapist uh, as well. And one of my core teachers, Mr. Iwashina, and uh, you, Stephen, have met him also, Dr. Bear, he's uh -huh. called. Uh, he's, he's blind, not from birth. He uh, lost his eyesight in an automobile accident when he was 20 or 21, I seem to recall. And... Uh, he no longer, for the last 30 years, has inserted needles in his patients. He just has the lightest touch. By that I mean at about, generally speaking, the weight of a nickel, about 5 grams. And uh, that's what he learned in his 13 years in the Toyohari style, which is uh, most of the practitioners of Toyohari are, are blind. It was uh, original, originally a, a blind-only style. Mm -hmm. So studying with him, I've seen uh, how effective it can be to really restrict yourself to quite superficial touch. But my uh, next most significant teacher, or they're tied for number one, I'd say, is uh, Jeffrey Dan, like Stephen here. He's background in martial arts. And uh, at times, uh, his, he, he's often very light. You know, he's also very advanced in visceral manipulation, cranial sacral work. But at times, uh, he will go uh, quite deep, uh, say, in the inguinal area. Um, and uh, so I, I'm actually quite grateful for that, that I am not only with people who are restricting themselves to the superficial, most superficial, superficial layer, but they're, they're trying to assess the patient 
uh, to see at what level. Now between that depth and Dr. Bear's light, 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 I have many teachers arrayed in between them. So <clears throat> I think the most important thing is that I've picked up with so many teachers I've been exposed to is it just what I heard you saying, Stephen, is this to touch with awareness and confidence, competence, knowingness, compassion, kind of the three C's, competence, confidence, compassion. Mm -hmm. the, a quote from William Blake I'll throw in here that I uh, can never uh, forget. He said, singular and particular detail is the foundation of the sublime. And that's what first struck me in studying with some of the advanced practitioners from Japan, that just with a, a, a quick little stroke of the forearm or a, a three-second uh, checking of the pulse, they, they have a, a mind-blowing amount of information they've just taken in, right? Because mm -hmm. they really know how to pay attention, right? And they've really studied their craft. Okay. Yeah, so that's, uh, for me, uh, where I still am. I have teachers who, when I'm with them, I have to be the gentlest of the gentle, and other teachers, when I'm with them, uh, I have to explore a deeper layer. Right, right. <clears throat> so this this notion of change, trying to affect change, right, is, is what we're ultimately after. How do you think, you know, that light touch... Um, what I hear, it's, I guess it's the touch plus the... Uh, awareness, the skill of awareness, being able to listen right. into those tissues, right. that you can find there. Um, what do you see the benefit of that light touch other than, I mean, you probably would get different kinds of information doing it a light touch versus a deep touch. Right, one of the masters in Japan, he touches, he assesses at three levels. That, that light touch uh -huh. he does, then sort of a mid-level, I'm guessing that's about 20 grams of contact pressure, then maybe a 40 for the deepest level. So he's going, he's doing a three-layer assessment. So that is done in Japan as well. Right. Um, the people who only work on the surface, they'll say things like, well, you can know the nature of water just from the surface, the water at the okay. depth, although the pressure, of course, would be more. Uh, so there are differences. Yeah, and yeah, the yeah. temperature will be different. But the nature of water itself can be known from the surface. Uh, okay. So they'll say things like that. And, of course, I've witnessed them do treatments and very uh, effective. You know, Dr. Bear, when he, I first studied with him in San Jose, that's, I guess, eight, eight or nine years ago now, he treated me as his model patient, and I had this horribly oppressive heat stuck in my chest. I, mm. I'd done something stupid. I was in a pulse seminar with Jeremy Ross. It was probably 96 or 97. And I volunteered to overdose myself on a ginseng extract. Uh. And I really took a, a massive <laughs> dose of powdered ginseng extract. And it, it just my it was the wrong herb for me and, and certainly the wrong dose. Right. And after that, I... It had heat that no one could get out. You know, we took the appropriate formulas like jirtsa chirtang and mm -hmm. needling in the chest, needling in the upper back. That would help for a day or two. Dr. Baird, just using the surface most work with these two tation, looks like a bit like a gold and a silver toothpick. In 35 minutes, it just the, the heat got sucked right out my right leg and out my foot and it never returned. Yeah. And I thought, that guy didn't touch me with more than five grams of pressure at any point in time. Yeah. How did he do what he did? But 
<clears throat> I don't think it's the best thinking that to then follow that with every treatment should be that light to get right. the best result. That he's listening in a way and he's learned how to work at that level. But other people have learned how to work at a different level and they also get very impressive uh, outcomes. So right. it's, it's an interesting question. I, I don't have a clear answer. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, what what I always think about is, is like permaculture, you know, where you have the, the open areas in, in, in the terrain and the, the wooded terrain and right where the border is between the two, right, there's the most changes, most uh, diverse, you know, living space, so to speak. The edges. The yeah. edges. And so when I think about touch, we always have to consider the edge. What is the edge, right? And in my opinion, sometimes it can be on the light side and you can find that edge, especially if, mm -hmm. you know, if it's something lighter and subtler that you have to kind of hook into. And sometimes that edge is, you know, deeper, you have to use a little mm -hmm. bit more pressure. Yeah, well, you know, my interest in Chinese medicine dream work, and I'll, I'll mention just in passing, I had a dream a number of years ago, I was still officially a member of the Toyahari style at the time, which is exceedingly light touch. They yeah. do insert needles here and there, um, but a lot of work is done right on the surface, and their insertions are usually no more than uh, you know half a millimeter to two millimeters uh -huh. deep. And uh, I, I never could quite make the progress in their needling techniques that I, I wanted to. My touch was just always not light enough to make the teachers happy and uh, you know I, I've spent plenty of time practicing it and I had a dream in which I go to this place to buy needles and I want to buy 44 gauge needles which is the thinnest needle you can buy in mm -hmm. the US in Japan 46 gauge does exist but they, no one imports them here okay so I'm asking for the lightest of the light needling tool right a 44 gauge needle uh -huh. and uh, and I, I could even see that there were some on the shelf, but for me, they would only sell me a 42 gauge, which the dream was a way of telling me, this is how I understood it, that stop killing yourself trying to get to uh, a lightness of touch that's not in your hands at this point in time. Yeah. Maybe five years from now it will be, maybe not, but the dream was saying it's okay that there's an element of physicality to how you're working. Yeah, and yeah. because in the Toyahari uh, subculture, uh, you know, it's the the lightest of the light of the light of the light is what is esteemed. It's, okay. And uh, I, I finally had to write a, a letter and resign the style, think, thanking uh, the teachers, but just uh, my path lay elsewhere. You know, it's just that wasn't right. going to be for me. I didn't want to feel like I was, you know, I was hearing the opinion that, you know, the patients suffer when you get to eight grams of contact pressure. Uh, human beings can't be that sensitive that, right. you know, two needles of contact pressure is damaging to them. So I just didn't like that idea that it had to be so, so light of necessity. Right, right. Now, on the flip side, you know, you also got the people who do this brutally deep touch, you know, where you... you <laughs> and that's the only setting they have. Right. Um, and that, that's obviously, a, you know, some people love that, right, receiving those kind of treatments. I'm not quite sure if they are ultimately therapeutically, you know, lasting and ch changing uh, to, to that deep degree. But it seems like that's, you know, out there as well. 
Right. <clears throat> now, as a teacher, um, is that is this something? What do you think is the key skill to 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 learn this type of touch? Like, can you learn it? Yeah, I think it is uh, transmittable, and some people arrive with more natural talent than others. Uh, sure, sure. I, I see this uh, in uh, the students year in, year out. Some are just born with uh, a natural, uh, beautiful touch, naturally beautiful touch. Mm -hmm. It takes time. Uh, I was interviewed once for this documentary crew making a video about um, Japanese acupuncture. They were from Japan. And uh, we went through the curriculum, the three-year curriculum there in Japan, and it is still possible at some schools here to get your acupuncture, your master's degree in three years. And uh -huh. they had so many more hours. They had the same number of Western science hours as here. Um, uh, but the a number of hours where they had devoted to tech technique, learning techniques, uh -huh. learning touch, learning needling, learning moxa, learning pulse was much more than here. Yeah. Uh, here it was studied at uh, PCOM in uh, San Diego as part of a, a doctoral uh, capstone project. And ninety percent of the hours of a, a TCM program, if you take PCOM here as in the US. average, is didactic. Here in the US is that in the US. Yeah. Uh, so we talk to people and we expect them to from learning the information we're talking about, we expect them to have manual mastery. Well, that, that's right. nonsense educationally. So we need a lot more time uh, devoted to the manual side of things. Yeah. Uh, and not just literally time massaging bodies, because some people don't want to go out in an acupuncture practice and do any body work. Right. But they need hands-on body time, right, to yeah. learn, to develop their touch. And they need meaningful practice sets uh, yeah. so that they learn something every time they're touching a body. Because maybe in 10 years, just touching bodies, they would end up someplace interesting. But we don't have 10 years with our students, and so we have to design practice sets. Your Qigong classes and your Qigong Tuina classes are filled with very clever practi practice sets, I call them, uh, so that people discover something that they had been up to that point in time missing in the yeah. world of touch. Yeah, so that's why at school I really I don't teach any lecture classes any longer. I haven't for four or five years. I only want to do hands-on classes. Right, uh, right. I'm not interested in talking about stuff. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's right. Whether you're doing needles or doing quote-unquote massage twina or Thai massage, ultimately that's all body work, right? It's con touching, connecting mm -hmm. with the body. Um, I find it always curious when you have people who like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm just an acupuncturist. I don't touch bodies, basically. And it's, it's a curious thing for me because you still have to touch the body. You still have to connect with it and, and get the information mm -hmm. from it. I mean, it's, it's quite uh, silly. On my, I think it's quite silly trying to find points without really palpating the body and finding what's, what's going on. You know, so much information. I mean, classically right. speaking... There was a whole, you know, set of principles you had to do in order to just palpate, not just even treatment, just to palpate the channels or something like that. 
Um, yeah, and I think what what's your notion of uh, you know awareness within right. touch? I mean, I think we've talked about touch and gentle and deep touch and so on, but it's really you know the more mm -hmm. we talk about it, it's clearer that it's that awareness piece mm -hmm. is, is so crucial. Before I answer that specifically, bring me back to that, but yeah. that, um, from the earliest references written which would be the Ma Wang Dui scrolls, as I understand it. We had 11 channels that were delineated on one scroll, uh -huh. uh, but there were no points named on them at that point in time. Right. It was this, I think, 300 BC or so. Uh, and so you have 11 channels, <laughs> not 12, and you have no points shown, but the channels <coughs> were a given therapeutic importance for this or that disease go to this channel. Well, obviously, if there are no points to go to, and it's saying just go to the channel, right. you had to have palpated the channel to yeah. find, and the, the treatment at that point in time was actually moxa. Moxa, as far as the written record goes, is um, older than acupuncture. Whether right. it actually is older or not, we don't know, but from the written record, yeah, at, yeah, we, yeah. at this point, we'd say that. So I wanted to say that, that Clearly, ancient Chinese were palpating. You can see it in the Shanghan Lun, uh, right. their abdominal Abdomen. findings yeah. cited and, and so on. It's there in the Nanjing, the classic of difficulties, where there's essentially an abdominal map, not drawn out, but described uh -huh. for the five elements. So people, <coughs> and there'd be no sense having an abdominal map if you weren't ta uh, touching, touching yeah. the abdomen to make that diagnosis. Exactly, uh, yeah. So, yeah, this idea that uh, people just throw in point protocols, uh, you know, they decide the patient has spleen deficiency and liver cheat stagnation to pick one, one that would be a very common diagnosis. So you're going to treat, you know, spleen nine and four gates. That kind of idea is just, um, I find it... Uh, not so compelling and not so convincing that it's going to be all that helpful. But a lot of acupuncturists, that's all their education brought them to. And they, yeah. they have no exposure to the idea that there might be more. I even remember one uh, acupuncturist maybe 10 years ago who had been a massage therapist saying, I'm so happy now because I can just put in uh, needles in the patient it, when I massaged them, I had to massage them the whole hour. Now I put in needles, takes, uh, you know, 10 minutes to interview and eight minutes to put the needles in. And then I've got the rest of the time, uh, the rest of the hour to go read my novel in the other room. <laughs> and I thought, oh, you, you couldn't have borrowed that much money to go to school uh, to do that level of work where you're happy that you're just kicking back in the other room. Right, right. But uh, I hope that's uncommon, but I encountered that, and that was not from a, a poor student either. Right. So um, the consciousness piece, for me, a major aha came in studying with Michael D'Agro uh, last fall in the, uh, well, let's see, this past fall, I think it would have been a year, so a year and a half ago in Chicago at the Zen Shiatsu Conference. Uh -huh. I mentioned him to you. He's got a broad <clears throat> background, like you, also studying in Taoism. He had studied also with Jeffrey Yuan. Uh, but his key background was in the, as I said, Zen Shiatsu. He had trained as a psychotherapist, and he still does some work there. But then got into the standard Zen Shiatsu, then also went off when 
Pauline Sasaki started her quantum shiatsu. He was her student for over, I think, I think about 13 years. Okay. And Kishi Akinobu, who was also, he was sort of the number one guy after Masanaga in Zen shiatsu, and he went off eventually on his own, forming a style called Seiki. Both very esoteric styles. And studying with Michael for two days, this whole dimension of what to do with my attention it became yeah. much more interesting to me. Uh, many Japanese uh, se seminars, uh, it was shared, put all your attention on the tip of the needle. Uh, right. Michael said just the opposite. You know, he's, exactly. He said, of course, some of your attention has to be there. Uh, but And some of your attention in your hands. And some of your attention on the wholeness of your patient, not just where the needle is but also this actual space you're in, the room you're in. Well, it made a world of difference uh, yeah. for me to open up this spatial piece, and then I went on to research it a bit and found uh, in anthropology circles, it's widely studied, many dissertations written about this or that culture's understanding of space and uh, the holiness of space. Yeah. and. So I've been ever since that, for, so for the last year and a half, and I find uh, that it changes everything. And where he had people giving feedback, how, how does it work with that, uh, to bring in the spatial element, how does the quality of your work change? You know, this is in Chicago, he's asking that. Uh, but for me, I felt like I had stumbled into what I immediately, the phrase dropped into my mind, and I like to pay attention to that kind of thing, a field of prayer. Mm -hmm. right? There was a, a holiness <clears throat> as soon as you open to the space, and uh, um, we were in a Buddhist center renting space for this conference. I thought, oh, maybe it's just a function of the actual room I'm in here. Right. You know, there were medicine Buddhas yeah. uh, hanging on the walls. Uh, but it's made all, when I came back here and work at our college clinic where there are no medicine Buddhas and uh, other spaces, uh, it's the same experience. So it was not a function of the particular space I'm in. It's a function of what is there available to us at all times, I think, in space itself. I brought that topic to you and you talked about Taoist yeah, hermits. Yeah. And maybe you could here uh, reiterate that, this idea of you know, being out in remote er areas and that gives you a certain kind of space right. to play with. Yeah. I'd like to hear it again. Well, that's one of my key pieces when I, you know, the, the courses that I teach is that I heavily emphasize, first of all, is just Qigong practice for the, for the individual, for themselves. And not to make them to develop more Qi as in like a quantity of Qi or something like that, but one key piece I think of that is is to develop better skills with your awareness. You know, the, the, the Chinese term that they use is ting, which is listening. Yeah, mm -hmm. And they, they, they pick that word specifically because there is this act of active yet also passive, right? You have to receive and you have to mm -hmm. do it, right? And so the idea is when most people come, and there's a clear, because I've got clinical classes, right, where we teach a, a therapeutic modality like Qigong Twin or something like that, and people come in straight away from that and they just want to do that. 
<clears throat> and I see them working and, and they do okay. And then I see the people who have done, who have had a year or two years or three years of Qigong practice, their personal cultivation practice. And then they do the Qigong Twina and there's like, there's a world of a difference in how mm -hmm. they approach it. And the technique wise, they might not be even better, but the level of awareness is really the key piece, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in Qigong, at first, where's our consciousness, our awareness is usually up in our heads, you know, behind mm -hmm. our eyes. And so with Qigong practice, you ultimately are starting to settle it throughout the body, right? You, you drop it down into the belly and then ultimately into the whole, into your whole body, into the, uh, as a practitioner, right? And that is first the first skill we want to really develop. So you're comfortable spreading your mind through your own body, right? And then when you're working with somebody else, <clears throat> you know, um, yeah, you don't focus on the tip of the needle. That's... It, that's really, from a classical perspective, that's not the right approach. It's be a, uh, the way I like to talk about it is having that centrality, right? Being able to be centered in the needle, not like focus. Focus is excluding everything else and just centralizing on the needle or, or your fingers or the touch of your fingertips or whatever. But having a central, central point, but then your awareness spreads through their body, right? So... And <clears throat> lots of alchemy, right? There's a lot of meditation, focus inside, having that kind of notion. But actually a large portion of training is also having an expansive awareness outside of their body, right? That's why they like to be on, you know, on a mountaintop where you have that expansive space outside of you, right? So you can expand your consciousness into that space. Um, and that's a key piece. And so as you then treat, you when you're coming back to a person touching somebody's body, you have obviously an awareness in their body, but then also spreading that awareness out into a room. So when I treat somebody, I generally have a full awareness of the four walls and the ceiling and the floor and that space, as well as centralized within their body. And it makes a huge difference, right? It makes a huge, huge difference. I was, I was shocked in the seminar how much changed. Um, yeah just from bringing in this spatial component. Uh, and I went on, I, I think the, uh, oh, what's the, the, this religious scholar, kind of a cr cross-religious uh, scholar, he was uh, Eastern European, Eliade something. Mer okay. Uh, Eliade uh, Mer Mercia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, and the concept of a hierophany, which is like a, kind of a, a descent of the sacred into your experience of the space you're in. Uh -huh. The space, spatial awareness is a key opening. It's an invitation to a hierophany to visit your life. And um, for me, bringing in that spatial element brings a different kind of awareness into my hands. And uh, I don't know, this is one we haven't talked about before. I want to bounce it off you here, but... For instance, there's a relationship between my two hands uh, that becomes entirely different when the spatial element is there. Yeah. There's a, a connection, and without the spatial element, I can try to force it. It just does, it doesn't come alive with any magic. Then you broaden your awareness to include, as you said, the four walls, the ceiling and the floor, the actual space you're in. Uh, so when we talk about space here, we're talking in a, a very real sense. The, the, the room you're in 
then it's just so different. And the, I've shared this in classes with the students. We make time to practice it properly. And the feedback's the same. Uh, this is very significant difference. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, you know, um, last year in Sweden when I was uh, with uh, Demo uh, training, he, he talked about this. We were working actually with trees, doing some Qigong exercises with trees. And uh, the idea was, you know, he talked about this two-pointedness awareness. Um, the tree and then the space, the woods around it and so on, and having that. And it made a word of a difference because, I mean, I've, I've done, you know, tree exercises before that and it, uh -huh. it came more alive, right, when you had that. And he was talking about that when you have that one-pointed, that focalized awareness on a point, um, <clears throat> that you essentially have, uh, this is my understanding of it, is that you have, essentially you're still having a two-pointed relationship, but it's you and that point, right? Mm -hmm. And so what happens is that uh, there's essentially that bouncing back and, and there's this, you know, uh, you getting more involved instead of just creating a space for change to occur, mm -hmm. taking you out of the picture so that there's not, you know, what are the psychological terms of, you know, uh, where things can bounce back, you know, you you, mm -hmm. you you see you treating yourself essentially, not treating the person or the situation at hand, right? Mm -hmm. In Dao's terms, we go into more um, what they talk about, the acquired aspect of nature, right? The pat Our patterns that mm -hmm. we look and we find in it. Um, instead of when you're spreading out, you lose some of that edge of, mm -hmm. you know, my patterns. As, yeah. a, as a as a treater there's a, the word edge again yeah exactly yeah yeah anything else you want to share about well the consciousness uh, piece uh, interests me you know larry dossi uh one of his early books he wrote about era one era two era three medicine and i don't think they have to be so purely distinct but i'll explain it and i visited his website uh, a few months ago, and it's interesting. He's come full circle. He's back there. You know, yeah. he wrote he wrote that in the eighties. Right. Uh, and I think it's in a book called Space Time Medicine, which okay. is uh, he's famous also for having two or three books where he discusses the studies on uh, prayer yeah, and, right, and right. healing. Um, well, era one medicine would be um, just the doctor as a mechanic. You know, right. the orthopedic surgeon is a perfect example of a era one intervention. But you can have acupuncture styles that are completely by design era one interventions. Right. Uh, needling muscle motor points. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be era one. And that's not by calling it one and then going on, I'm not saying anything bad about era one. When you need an orthopedic surgeon, you need an orthopedic surgeon right. uh, generally. That's the per person you need to get to, not at that moment a shaman. Um, <clears throat> and so era two then would be uh, what he called mind-body uh, medicine. Uh -huh. And this is where a lot of people understand acupuncture to belong and things like Reiki and medical Qigong. Um, uh, and yeah, I think some acupuncture styles are there for certain and then you go to era three, and this is what he calls non-local. Uh, and this was always a difficult uh, problem, as I understand it, in physics. I'm not a physicist, but a, I was a math teacher, so I'm, I'm not 
without uh, some understanding of uh, the uh, the technical side that um, Bell's theorem <coughs> was a uh, uh, predicting the non-local effects, meaning that the opposite of a non-local effect would be an effect where it, it's propagated at the speed of light. Okay. And, uh, but for have to have something instantaneously change from uh, one paired uh, uh, electron, say, to another, uh, that wasn't thought to be. Um, people didn't like the idea in physics, uh -huh. and uh, but then it was proved by a French team. And they had to accept it. Actually, wow! Under certain conditions, they're going to say, right? You can have right. paired uh, subatomic particles where the effect from one to the other is instantaneous, not at the speed of light, faster, instantaneous, okay. instantaneous. truly, truly instantaneous. instantaneous. Yeah. And we don't know how to explain that. And of course, they're going to want to uh, uh, separate that off and say, well, it's just in these special circumstances. But for people who are thinking more metaphorically, uh, that uh, then you think of does this connect to prayer and healing, which yeah. that seems to be not only instantaneous, but it seems like if you pray now, you can cause an effect on patients from ten years before in right. that one Israeli study that is cited. <clears throat> so these ideas about consciousness uh, I've been playing with for a number of years now. Um, sort of, I don't want to say prayer as in the sense of um, repeating uh, words like a Hail Mary or an Our mm -hmm. Father. I have nothing mm -hmm. against that. I'm just trying to be clear about what I'm saying. This is more like uh, Thomas Merton uh, saying, who was a famous Trappist monk. He said, how I pray is breathe. Uh -huh. Right? That <clears throat> it's just... A, a different understanding of what we mean by this word prayer or a contemplative stance uh, to life. Uh, when I can enter that space with my patients, uh, that's something that's very interesting to me now, this yeah. idea. And again, to use the word prayer is just fraught with difficulties because everyone is thinking that you're going to be saying, you know, Om Mani Padme or Our Father Who Art in Heaven or Hail Mary, Hail, uh, whatever, you know, these saying set prayers. Right. And again, nothing against that uh, done well. I'm sure it's a beautiful experience and all. But this broader, almost Zen understanding of prayerfulness. Right. Uh, this, I think, has made me a much better practitioner in the last three years since uh, this has been happening. Yeah, I mean, the, the, again, yeah, the, the, the piece of awareness is, is that thing that I'm still trying to understand as much, tr create that field, right, is, is such uh, a key yeah, piece. Key word, the field. Yeah. Field. I mean, I know that's a buzzword out there, but I mean, that has been out there, in, you know, the Buddhists and in, in, Everybody has actually really touched on that, right? Again and again, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the ability to to st stably, in my opinion, it's also that stability of having that awareness in stably in mm -hmm. that space um, is is a key piece. I think that um, right. that can be actually trained. In, in, right. Uh, um, I think that's the key piece. I'm, so. 
this is not my full understanding that I but if you look at the character for Ling which is a, a Chinese term for oftentimes like the Ling Shu right the, mm -hmm. the well which is what spiritual something like that it's a Pib pivot yeah oh, the sp the spiritual Ling. pivot is a mm -hmm. Chinese medical book but that term Ling if you look at it that spiritual it's it's an, actually an aspect of consciousness right and they talk about it as like that um, in the character if you look at it it's that divine and there's a mouth that's the expression of the divine, right? Mm -hmm. And it's kind of curious that they named, you know, an act, well, it's a lot of acupuncture right. in the Ling Shu, right. that they named that book Ling Shu, you know, that, that pivot of the Ling, right? right? That expression of that uh, divine, for lack of better words, and that's the my understanding is that if you can access that, that's where those instantaneous, spontaneous healings, spontaneous deep shifts can occur, where you as a practitioner are not really consciously mm -hmm. doing something. I'm intending to do this or that or the other, but it, it just manifests through the act of of your treatment, and mm -hmm. that what shifts things. So. I love yeah. yeah, I would say there the one that has inspired me the most in terms of a translation of Ling Shu One was done by Dan Bensky and Charles Chase, and you can find it on. Char it was published in the Australian journal The Lantern, which is I think probably our best Chinese medicine journal, uh, and it's still up I think at, at Chip Chase's website. So Charles okay. Chase C H A C E, and it's. Uh, Chip Chase uh, passed recently, very sad to lose him, but he was a, a very dedicated Zen practitioner, a beautiful writer, and of course Dan Bensky uh, ha has to be seen as, if not the top classical scholar in North America, at least he's on the short list. Uh -huh. uh, and bringing in, of course, his palpatory skills, I've never seen anyone uh, anywhere close to him. You know, he's he was Upledger's teaching assistant as the cranial sacral work was being developed at the University of Michigan in the 70s. Yeah. And he's been in that world ever since he is an osteopath. So an amazingly impressive practitioner, but he also just a very good sinologist and brings a, a deep understanding of the Chinese characters to his work. But also he's had so many experiences in the subtle realm of palpation. So I think that's the, if for people listening to this, if you want to go someplace to get a sense of what Stephen is talking about, uh, uh, this kind of deeper dimension that is intimated in the Ling Shu, you're going to get that from their uh, translation of the first chapter, and uh, or part of the first chapter. It wasn't even, I don't think, the whole thing. And uh, um, I, I just find it so... Uh, inspiring and on chip's website you'll again that's charleschase.com you'll find other articles he was a very gifted writer i think the zen practice really helped him there yeah yeah i also wanted to mention just as a resource um you know you did the scholars hour and that was a on on space i think that's on the nunm library website if i someone told me i haven't gone to check yeah so it might it might be viewable as a okay. streaming download, something like that. Um, but yeah, that I was after I volunteered for that. I kicked myself like, oh, 
the last thing I needed was another thing on my to-do list, but I wanted to do a good job of it. And then some uh, anthropologist friends, one of whom is a student of yours, helped with uh, uh, putting together a reading list for me uh-huh. of the important uh, works that came readily to their minds on uh, this idea of uh, the anthropology of space, we could call it. Right. And so that helped inform my talk, and uh, I, I drew on some older resources too. Yeah. So that was an important uh, stepping out there for me because here's the curious thing: at the Zen uh, Shiatsu gathering, when Michael uh, D'Agro was asking for feedback, and everyone was talking, I'll, I'll say secular. They're yeah. talking about a secular space. And in our small group, uh, there may be six or seven of us, uh, you know, because we had been divided up into little pods, say. Right. And the sharing in our little pod, I, I shared this idea that, well, what occurred to me was this phrase dropped in, you know, I'm, I'm connecting into a field of prayer and it feels so sacred. That went over like a lead balloon. <laughs> and I thought, oh, oh. Everybody didn't experience what I just That's experienced, it. and so and I never had a chance to bounce it off Michael there, but we've had a, a email exchange in the last uh, three four months, and uh, I sent him a link to listen to the talk I had given. He listened to it. He was very moved that I mentioned him there and his impact on me, and uh, he totally. Um, uh, supported this idea that what you connect in to at least potentially has this whiff, we'll call it the scent or the whiff of the sacred to mm-hmm. it. And he also mentioned an interesting thing that didn't in the email. He said he's been playing with the idea of not trying to connect in with uh, his patient's chi, like what he's feeling when he feels, does a, a channel palpation, uh-huh. say. But he's more holding the idea, he's checking in with uh, Shen Ming. I thought, oh, what do you mean with Shen Ming? The, the, the radiance of the spirit. Okay, okay. Uh, rather than this idea. And Unschuld, who's you know the top translator, he said this long ago in the 90s. He said, uh, you know, energy is not at all a great translation for Qi. He said, we're right. very comfortable talking about energy because... Um, our economy depends on it, mm-hmm. uh, and so we have this vernacular, uh, you know, we need energy for our car to run our electricity and so on. He said to someone in ancient China to ask them how, how their energy is, they wouldn't even understand yeah, exactly. the question. And I know you have different ideas, different translations you use, they're all welcome, but he was just pointing out the problems uh, he he likes like Dr. Monica the the word influences. Uh-huh. Uh, that's one possibility that takes it away from this idea of vital energy. Right. Of course, in the West there was a movement called vitalism, so it ties into this old yeah. roots of naturopathic medicine idea. Um, but why don't you mention your ideas on qi translation because uh, I know that's come up in your classes. Yeah. So the idea, I mean. Again, you know, Chinese terms, which I, I, I have explored more these days, I've, I've thought more about, you know, that it's always contextual, right? This notion that the qi is not a fixed thing, right? And, mm-hmm. um, and I can speak more about that. But oftentimes, I, you know, in the, 
it depends on from the context. So when you do Tai Chi, the Chi that they're talking about there is very different than what you talk in Qigong or Neigong, that, that Chi that you're talking about that, or for that matter what you talk about in, in Chinese medicine at, at mm -hmm. large, right? Um, I like that notion of, of informational pattern, vibrational informational pattern. That's it. You know, that it informs the tissues or informs, you know, this, this, this aspect that informs your being, right? Whether it's all the way on the dense side of the physicality or your consciousness mind, right? On the, that spectrum in between. And for that matter, you know, an old translation, for instance, of the acupuncture channels were often kind of heavenly streams, right? And mm -hmm. in this term, that heavenly actually was is considered is the uh, aspect of, of consciousness, of mm -hmm. our mind, right? Mm -hmm. right? And so that's that flow through the body, that those are the channels. That this essentially is that just describing that the mechanism between consciousness awareness that that level and our physicality and you know we <coughs> just talk about mind-body interaction and they just describe the mechanism that they figured out and those are the channels essentially that's how it informs uh, through the body spreads through the terrain of our body and informs things mm -hmm. yeah. so that that's where you know the way I see this mm -hmm. notion of chi or yeah I, I'm not a particular fan of energy because it's is exceedingly vague, you know. Right. Um, also, this notion of um, what I've been exploring lately is also this notion of, you know, as a culture, what the Chinese, you know, if you look at uh, ancient Chinese culture, I think the root of of their culture is this trying to understand change, right? And so that one mm -hmm. of arguably the one of the oldest books that they have is the I Ching, the right. Book of Changes, right? Right. Arguably, probably life was quite vicarious, right? There were wars, mm -hmm. there was famines, and so on. And people were like, oh, "We gotta have an understanding of what's what's going on, right?" And so they really focused. I mean, all cultures essentially try to all old cultures try to understand change to a large degree, but they really try to like, okay, we're gonna focus on change. And they really pointed it out, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's why they, this, you know, this is just my opinions, my thoughts, late, my thoughts lately, why they have, you know, uh, trying to figure out change, why they have, for instance, a pictographic language, right, mm -hmm. is because a picture can describe various different aspects. It's not a fixed thing. It's, it describes, you know, mm -hmm. there's change built into that concept, into those ideas. And if you mm -hmm. look at Chinese language, you know, one character means five different things, you know, depending mm -hmm. on what context it is. And that, again, finding that change, trying to understand that change is really a key piece of Chinese medicine, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, you had me thinking of Gregory Bateson there, uh, a famous cross-disciplinary genius, maybe known best that he was married to Margaret Mead for a time, oh, okay. and she was very famous. Uh, but uh, he was in a key player in the Macy conferences that birthed the computer revolution. Uh, so systems theory, and uh, he studied uh, animal communication yeah. and... But um, <clears throat> he defined information as news of a difference. You could substitute right. the word change for change, difference there. Exactly. So if, you, if the universe is just this uh, 
wall-to-wall -wall blankness, uh, you know, nothing but uh, uh, uniformity, that's a universe with no information right. in it at all. So, <clears throat> um, when we touch patients, in one sense, we're looking for information, and information is always going to present itself as uh, this millimeter of skin feels different from this millimeter of skin. Maybe temperature difference, maybe texture difference, maybe there is a fascial pull in one part and not in another. All kinds of yeah. differences that could come, or we could get to this, we're trying to avoid the word energetic, but for right. lack of a better word, energetic differences. Maybe there's an emotional image that comes when you touch them you know, in their chest region and a very different one when you're down in their lower abdomen, you know, this sort of thing, that we're looking for differences. And uh, tying back to the William Blake quote, singular and particular detail is the foundation of the sublime. If we haven't trained our hands, if we haven't changed, and not just our hands, our awareness, the consciousness you're bringing uh -huh. into this conversation, then all kinds of information gets missed. We miss probably, even if we're good, we miss a lot more than we actually manage to uh, notice. Uh, it's just uh, so vast. Uh, but that, that is the cultivation. Can we be ready so that we can perceive uh, uh, the singular and particular details that actually make a difference, right? Yeah news of a difference, again, is the definition for uh, information. Yeah. Uh, and it sounds like such a basic idea, but you can think about that quote for months. Mon exactly. Making the simple profound. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, yeah, those people outside of Chinese medicine, by the way, have always been very significant uh, for me. You know, Bateson and Buckminster Fuller and the physicist David Bohm, who, by the way, Einstein said was the best mind in the generation behind his own. They worked yeah. together at uh, Princeton. Uh, and, you know, Bohm went on to have all those famous dialogues with Krishnamurti and with the Dalai Lama. And when he died, the Dalai Lama said he was my, he had been my science guru. Ah. Uh, so all those people, because I, I don't understand Chinese medicine in this narrow way. Of course, you have to learn some of the stuff that belongs in Chinese medicine, sure. you know, the, the little factoids and, and so on and the theories. But I under, I'm interested in natural medicine as much as anything. Uh, I'm not... Uh, um, enamored with the uh, Chinese or Japanese, and I'm not, not enamored. It, it's just another culture to mm -hmm. me. They had some interesting insights. Uh, I'm sure the Greeks did in, the Arab, in Arab medicine and Tibetan medicine. They all had profound insights, too. I just happened to have ended up here. Um, and it's a bit of a mystery how that happened. But I, I'm interested in medicine that's... Um, consistent with nature's organizing principles to steal language right. from Buckminster Fuller. Uh, and I think yin-yang is uh, a big part of how nature works. I think you can see whooshing in nature right. also. And so in that sense, that's where I plant myself in Chinese medicine is yin-yang and whooshing for the most part. Right. Yeah, I mean, uh, that, I mean, all those ideas, those concepts that they came up with is essentially just to explain this, as you said, that, that the phenomena. phenomena of change, right? Right. Right, and, and, and the, the, the movement through it. 
we're a little over an hour in our talk right. now, so um, I don't know if you. I'm happy to chat more, but for the listener, this might be right. Exactly, that would be a good time. Time to stop. Um, I well, thank you for for having this talk. I'm, uh, I'm excited to do this. This is exactly what I love, and um, I'll do my best to uh, get this out there. So, yeah. Um, and if the listeners have any, um, we'll try to get it out on obviously as a as a podcast. And you know, if there's any particular topics of interest um, uh, that that pertains to Chinese medicine or or mm -hmm. things of uh, you know larger that related to these things, yeah, let us know. Um, I can ask in my classes too. Yeah, that would be wonderful, and then we can go from there, and you know, uh, try to bring some informative things. Um, for all alike. Great. So. I look forward to the next conversation. Yeah, thank you, Queen.